Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hello, I'm Julie Gunlock, Director of the Culture of Alarmism Project at the Independent Women's Forum. Today, I'm here with Dr. Julie Goodman, a principal at Gradient and an adjunct faculty member at the Department of Epidemiology at the Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Goodman is an expert in toxicology, epidemiology, and assessing human health risks from chemicals and consumer products and the environment. Today, we're going to talk about something called chemphobia, or the fear of chemicals. Why does this new phobia exist? Who is promoting it and why? And why the American public could probably benefit from a greater understanding of just how chemicals interact with the human body and why chemicals can be very useful in keeping products and humans safe. Julie, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself and um, how you got into this work and how you work on these issues. I have a Ph.D. in toxicology and a Master of Science in epidemiology. My work involves evaluating human health risks from chemicals in the environment or in consumer products. What I do is I look at all of the published scientific literature. I'm not out doing experiments myself, but I look at all the literature and and determine as a whole what does it say about human health risks. And there's quite a lot of literature out there to review, um, and I think we should talk about that later. But first, I want to sort of talk about the culture. As you know, I had mentioned that uh, that IWF started a program called the Culture of Alarmism Project a couple of years ago, and part of the reason... Um, actually, part of the reason we started the program, it was very organic. We're all moms at IWF. Most of us are, most of the women who write for IWF are moms. Obviously, we're all women. And I think all of us started to notice that we were being told that everything, not just chemicals, um, pesticides, you know, certain uh, way in which, uh, you know, certain energy uh, platforms um, were going to harm us and harm our children. And it was just this constant mantra of danger out there. So, you know, women are constantly bombarded with messages that, that, you know, that we're going to talk about here today. Chemicals that are used in food packaging or in plastic products are toxic and they're going to harm their children. And activists definitely target moms. I think part of the reason is they know that if you tell a woman that, you know, something that she's eating or doing is going to harm her, she may or may not change her habits. But if you tell her, Um, that something can be harmful to her child, you can guarantee she's going to be nervous about this or change her her habits. So I think what's frustrating to a lot of people who follow these issues is that, you know, there are naturally occurring chemicals that are found in many foods and far more, that are far more potent than these synthetic chemicals. So I'm wondering if you can give me an example, you know, of, of some of these naturally occurring you know, chemicals that are in foods and other things. You know, soy is a good example and, you know, grilling out, that kind of stuff. Um, If you could kind of talk about that and talk about sort of the difference between synthetic and naturally occurring chemicals. Sure, and and you brought up two very good examples. Soy contains phytoestrogens. So these are naturally occurring estrogens. So anytime you have soy milk, edamame, anything made with soy, you're consuming natural estrogens. What I find the most interesting about this is that the amount of estrogens in soy are, are much higher than any possible exposures to bisphenol you could get from you know, eating food that's been in packaging made with bisphenol or drinking something that's been in a can lined with an epoxy lining that was made with bisphenol. So 
just because something is is human made or man made, it doesn't mean that it's going to be more potent than say something that's right. found in nature. Well, let's back up a little bit and talk a little bit about that chemical that you mentioned, bisphenol, which I didn't really mention in my intro, but this is something that I think a lot of moms hear about. Bisphenol A um, is commonly called BPA. And several years ago, actually, right around the time I had my first child, um, there was a lot of talk about BPA and baby products and, you know, should they be in baby products? And, you know, you saw, you started to see this cottage industry pop up of BPA bottles, BPA water bottles, BPA this. Now everything, I mean, my goodness, you find it's a marketing term now. Um, you know, if you want the good product, you'll, you'll get the BPA-free product. And so this little cottage industry sprung up. And again, now we've seen that BPA has been taken out of a lot of products. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that particular chemical, um, why it's been sort of vilified, um, what the research actually says. And again, then you mentioned sort of the natural chemicals that have the same qualities like soy milk and, you know, you mentioned edamame, which is my favorite, um, you know, that have, are much more potent. So if you could give us just a brief history of BPA, tell us what it is and why it's used. Sure. So bisphenol A or BPA is a chemical that's used to make polycarbonate plastic. So this is really hard plastic that's in like eyeglasses, it's in uh, CDs, um, helmets that firemen men wear, and it's, it's polycarbonate plastic is really strong. Like if you were to hold it, you can't squeeze it. Like, you know, if you hold like a water bottle, if you buy water yeah. now, if you squeeze it, it dents. Polycarbonate is so strong that you can't, it won't move if you try to squeeze it. And, you know, it was used for baby bottles because it was such a good, product. Basically, a lot of people, when you hear BPA-free, people, I think, think that it's plastic made and they just magically take out the bisphenol. Well, bisphenol is actually a building block for that kind of plastic. Any type of plastic you have is made of of chemicals that are kind of all bound together. So the idea is if it's BPA-free, it's not polycarbonate. It's, It's another plastic that's made with another chemical. Basically, if you give animals or I guess people extremely high doses of bisphenol, it can act like an estrogen. Nobody's arguing that bisphenol has this property at really high exposure levels. The issue is, is can this happen in our everyday lives? If, if children or, or babies are drinking out of polycarbonate baby bottles or we are, we're drinking soda out of cans lined with epoxy resins. Oh, I should mention, that's the other use for it. It's, it's used as a building block for epoxy resin. And so epoxy is used to line cans. And they actually have a huge... Um, public health benefit because this prevents food right. poisoning. You know, as, as you've seen, there have been baby bottles and other kinds of bottles made out of other components, um, out of other chemicals. But in terms of the lining, I'm not quite an expert in this, but it's my understanding that depending on the properties of the food, like the acidity and things like that, there isn't a replacement for BPA for all types of food. There isn't a need for another option because it, it's not actually a health risk. It's actually preventing health risks by having this public health benefit of preventing food sickness. Right. And I want to get into a little bit of what I, you know, I find that sort of anti-chemical activists, and there are a lot of anti-chemical activists out there right now telling moms that it doesn't matter what the dose is. It doesn't matter how much of the chemical is. It's just the mere presence of a chemical um, that's dangerous. And I think people in your field, toxicologists, certainly know that that's poppycock. I mean, Obviously, you know, if you're going to sit down with a gallon of, you know, pure chemical and, and drink it, then yes, the, you know, that's dangerous. But adding trace amounts of chemicals as a preservative 
or as a component in a larger product, um, it, it does not, it's not sort of the same poison. So I think sort of putting that out to moms is, is helpful for them to be able to make these decisions. And I think what's frustrating, I think, for a lot of people who cover these issues is that the why is never explained. The why is often left out of the discussion on chemicals. So why are chemicals used in products? You mentioned BPA being used in bottles. And I think what people forget is babies used to get glass bottles and walk around, you know, and, you know, you've got a little toddler and they're walking around. I mean, we all know that kids drop things, you know, babies and toddlers drop things. And, you know, so they drop their bottle and it would be glass shards and then they'd cut themselves. So at one point, you know, having a very hard plastic bottle that couldn't break into shards if it was dropped on the floor was considered progress. I mean, do you think that given this information, well, I guess my question is, do you think given this information it would reassure moms? And secondly, how do you, how do scientists like yourself, how do other people sort of promote the idea of educating women on sort of, you know, for instance, dose and why that makes the poison, and also why these chemicals are used to improve products? That's a big question. <laughs> so, I mean, dose is absolutely the most in, important concept in, in toxicology. And I get so frustrated when I see the news and they say, you know, chemicals were found in dust or chemicals were found in a school. And they never say how much. Was it right. a lot or was it a tiny bit? Because if it's, if it's small enough, just because you can detect it, we're at this point where technology is so good that you can detect exceedingly small levels of things. And that's actually what's happening with bisphenol. You know, because we have this technology, we can see that it's there, but it's really so small that it doesn't matter. And so, yeah, I mean, I see your point about we chemicals, we use chemicals so we can live our lives in the society where we have all these great products like plastic baby bottles. And of course, you know, there are incidences when people use chemicals that are bad and there has been, I mean, like lead in paint, right. that is bad, <laughs> asbestos. Um, and insulation, that is bad. But in terms of the chemicals that are used in these products, I mean, specifically bisphenol is what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about every chemical in the world. Yeah, sure. It has been so thoroughly tested. And um, I think what people that are against bisphenol are saying is that all these tests don't matter because we all agree about the effects of these high doses, but they're they're talking about studies and they're saying these studies are showing effects happen at low doses that everybody's just missing or everybody's not paying attention. And if you look at all these studies, you'll see that they're there, but that's actually not true. People are paying attention. I mean, people are looking at those studies and looking at whether or not those studies are relevant to humans and they're finding that they're actually not. And if you look at the studies that are relevant to humans, those studies are showing basically that you need really high exposures. I mean, way higher and I'm talking like you need to drink a million cans of soda a day or, right. you know, I mean, it, it's just an impossible situation. You cannot you get that level you'll, of exposure. You'll die of, you'll die of water overdose before you die of, I mean, I actually, I've, I've written about this, about how um, at one point uh, they were, they were talking about how hoses, garden hoses are poisonous because they're made of PVC and that when, you know, you let your child drink out of a garden hose, they're getting some sort of, you know, PVC sort of comes out as, I guess, it leaches into the water. And so, you know, I mean, this seems very compelling, you know, and, there, and actually there are PVC-free garden hoses that even popped up because of this media firestorm that happened. But when you actually think about it, like, you would, you, your child would, would have to, like, they would die of water consumption before they could drink enough 
to reach toxic levels of PVC exposure. And so I think, you know, you just sort of sometimes people, they hear things, it sounds terrifying. And then you think, goodness, how much water, you know, how often do I allow my child to drink out of a, a garden hose? Do I allow the dog to drink out of the garden hose? You know, and it can really spin out of control. But I think when people kind of get a sense of like, you, like you just said, you'd have to sit down and eat 2,000 cans of Campbell's soup. Nobody's going to do that kind of stuff. So sort of putting it in a real-world sort of scenario, I think, is really critical, which often the press doesn't do. The idea is that what you have to do is, is every chemical has its own properties. Everything, like you said, even water, water is toxic at a high enough dose. It'll disrupt right. your electrolyte balance. You hear of marathon right. runners dying from, from too much water. Absolutely everything is toxic. You, what you need to do is look at each chemical, look at all the studies, and, and see what it says. And and picking out a few studies and being alarmist about it is not <laughs> – that's, that's not going to help you or your kids. It's not public health protective. You really want to look at all the studies as a whole um, and look at whether they're you know, good quality studies, whether they were conducted properly, and also whether they're relevant to humans. Because a lot of studies, they're, they're interesting studies, and they tell us about the way of the world – um, but they don't tell us about what's actually happening in people. And that's a well, key factor. It is a key factor. And, I, and I'd also like to talk a little bit about the media and how the media covers these issues because I think a lot of people do get information. Look, we all know that, um, that for the most part, if it bleeds, it leads. So, you know, the media has an interest in selling stories. Um, and so a lot of this sort of chemphobia or this fear of, of chemicals really goes over well in the media. And you've seen the headlines, you know, baby shampoo found to be toxic, crib mattresses are toxic. You know, it's always just sort of like these, you know, or baby bottles are toxic, BPA is toxic. You know, there's all, always these sort of um, these hysterical headlines that go along with it. So, you know, recently, and there's a good example of this, recently Newsweek ran an article on BPA. And as we said, it's, it's, it's a chemical used to harden plastics and also in the lining of foods. Uh, canned foods. Um, and the, the, the author of the article, he, you know, he quotes one scientist saying that the vast majority of, of studies on BPA show that BPA causes or is linked to many health problems. I mean, this is, a, this is what the reporter actually said, right? Um, so a question for you. Um, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about the, these studies. You know, he, 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 he's very broad. He doesn't really go into details about these studies. He just says these studies there's just a variety of problems that they're linked to. Again, not really going, de- going into depth about the studies. And, you know, uh, the New York Times science reporter Andrew Rifkin said that he called this the study, the single study syndrome, which is the tendency of a lot of anti-chemical groups and environmental groups to latch on onto and push studies supporting an agenda, no matter how tenuous or how dubious the research might be. So can you talk a little bit about that, about the need to really examine these studies each individually and realize that just because a study might show something, it doesn't necessarily mean that that study was a good study. It might not have sort of met, you know, it might not have um, met scientific standards. Sure. And, and I think there's two issues. I, I think I might have mentioned it before. It's, it's quality and relevance. So study quality is, is how good a job did you do conducting this study? You know, like if you're doing a study in lab rats where your rats all happy, <laughs> I that's kind of a funny way to say it, but the point is, is they're, they're all in sort of a, an environment where they're just living as they would. They're not feeling high stress, and then you could have stress hormones. Um, are they all being treated the same? Do they all have the same temperature, the same food? If there's any difference between those that are the control animals, you know, not getting BPA and those getting BPA, that could impact the results. So you want to make 
it's first of all key that the studies are high-quality studies. But then the other aspect that I mentioned to you is, is study relevance, that you can have a very high-quality study. If everything's controlled perfectly, very good study design, but it just it, it doesn't tell you anything about what's going to happen in people. So, so, um, so, good example. so tell me a good example of, of that. Well, one, I mean, I think it's kind of extreme, but it, it's, it's out there, is these studies where um, they were looking at, at BPA's effect on the brain in monkeys. And so they removed the monkey's ovaries, so they had no ovaries, and then they, I believe, injected the bisphenol in the brain. So that is, there's no human situation that I can think of where that's going to happen. Right, I right. mean, yes, there are women who have their ovaries removed, or, or maybe that's, you know, you could think of some situation, but in, in, for the most part, women have their ovaries and they're functioning. Um, but the other thing is they're not injecting bisphenol right into their brain. I mean, that doesn't happen. So the way in which people are being exposed to BPA is through, you know, drink, uh, eating a can of soup or eating, you know, making a pasta dish with, with, um, with canned tomatoes or, um, or touching a receipt or, you know, and how many, I mean, unless you're, you know, <laughs> you're a shopaholic, you're probably not, you know, you're touching about, you know, on average, a couple of receipts a day. Um, so you're not getting this dose. And, and, and what the, the studies that I've seen, some of the studies that I've seen that have shown, you know, tumors and all these adverse health effects, BPA is directly injected into the blood. There was another one that I saw where it was, a BPA was put directly on cells. I mean, it, it's, it's not, we're not, you know, being exposed to it in that way. But again, the media often doesn't make these distinctions, which leads, you know, people thinking the common, uh, you know, like I said, like eating a can of soup is really going to, to, to cause these ad- adverse effects. You also see, and I'd like your opinion on this, people talking about it, um, it building up in the body. Can you talk a little bit about whether BPA sort of sits around and you end up with this huge buildup of BPA in your body? Yeah, that's absolutely not true. Um, There have been many studies, and basically, when you ingest BPA or however it gets in your body, it has a half-life of four hours. And what that means is that in four hours, it's about half gone. And then in four more hours, it's half gone again. So basically, in a day, it's all gone. So there is no BPA buildup in the body at all. Okay. And that's important, too, because I think people do say, look, you know, people who live on a budget – you know, they might rely more on canned foods. And that's what really bothers me. I think that there's, there's something particularly dis, um, disturbing about some of the foods that are, are, you know, that use BPA are the ones that are affordable. And so if you're, if you're going to tell women, oh, canned food is, you know, is, 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 a, is a source of poison for your children, well, that actually does impact because fresh foods can be fresh vegetables, fresh fruits. Those can, are more expensive. And so I think, you know, to some degree, you're harming the very people, um, you know, who might have trouble buying fresh fruits and vegetables. And so canned foods um, are, you know, they rely on many, many people who live under or at the poverty line rely on canned foods. And so it's particularly important that we push back on this idea that, that you know, canned foods with a BPA lining are some, somewhat, you know, are some somehow harmful. I want to talk about how what kind of checks there are within the scientific community. There's a lot of grants that go um, to scientists to continue to study uh, uh, BPA, and that's fine. That's, you know, it's, it's fine that, um, that these chemicals, the safety record, you know, people are continuing to check on 
on these chemicals to make sure that they're safe to use. However, it is kind of interesting when you consider the FDA and other agencies are constantly, you know, the European Food Safety Commission has certified the safety of BPA. Actually, they just recertified, they sort of restated the, the safety of BPA. And yet, and, and also American agencies. And, um, and yet you still have funds, um, you know, government funds um, going to, to study what sort of has already been established. What can you tell us about that, about, you know, the sort of need for the continued study of these issues and, and whether that's wasteful or whether you think it's a good use of, 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 of funding? I, as far as I know, I mean, bisphenol could be the most studied chemical, and if it's not the most, it's certainly up there. I mean, there's been thousands of studies on them, and I know the U.S. government has spent over 150 million. I don't know the exact amount of money on on grants, so um, yeah. for people to study bisphenol, and I think there have been some very good studies out there, and then there's been some that, I mean, they've been, as I said, interesting science, but not not really helpful in terms of understanding human health risk, and. Yeah. Right now, there's a study going on called CLARITY. It's an acronym for Consortium Linking Academic and Regulatory Insights on BPA Toxicity. And the idea is, is this is a government-funded study, and it's everyone that's been crit- criticizing you know, BPA research, saying there's been issues because it's been the wrong rat strain or wrong dose or this or that. They sort of took all that in and made this giant study, and it's um, different people are conducting different parts of it with the idea that, look, everyone that's saying the, the right study hasn't been done, we're doing it here, so hopefully this will be the, the final. And um, that the some initial results have been released, but I, the, the total results, I think that's the kind of study, if you're going to study it, that's what you can do. But all these other sort of small-scale studies, I mean, I think if we're going to continue to fund research, I mean, I'm a scientist, I'm never going to say stop studying, <laughs> but if we're going to keep... Uh, funding research, it needs to be clear that that research is really going to have, um, lead to an understanding of, of human health risks. Right, um, right. And if not, I, I, I don't think it's, it's worth pursuing. And I think, like, for example, a lot of studies are using what they're calling low exposures, but they're really not low exposures. They're, they're tens, hundreds, thousands of times higher than what humans are really exposed to. So they should be looking right. at human exposure levels and not these high ones. And you know, those kind of studies and the injection studies versus when it's in food or, or water. I mean, it, it's only if these studies are relevant to, to humans should we keep studying it. Otherwise, it's, it's, I think, you know, money should be spent elsewhere. We've got plenty of other health issues that we need to resolve, and that's, that's where the money is best spent. Yeah, and I think, that's, I think that's really well said because I think people forget that research grants are, you know, look, there are plenty of diseases that are underfunded, um, you know, you, you, you go up on Capitol Hill on a lobby day and you're going to see, you know, um, you know, different, uh, you know, health lobbyists up there on, you know, talking to their legislators, um, congressmen and senators about how, oh, this particular disease needs more funding. And, and the truth is many, many do. Um, and, and so there's a lot of things out there that are underfunded that could probably use a little of the $122 million that continues to be flowing to, um, to BPA research, um, for cancer and other things. So, um, so I think that's, that's a really good point that, that there are other things, there are other priorities out there that, that really should be, um, that we should look at. Um, I, I think the last thing that I would say is, you know, or I would ask is, what would you say, um, to a mom out there who might be nervous, 
who might not have the time to read a lot of, oh, let me read the latest, you know, study on, you know, toxicological study on, on um, BPA's impact on the human body. Like, what are good, some good sources you think, what are some, uh, some tips you would, you would say to moms, maybe some, some things that you would say to moms to reassure them about this, about BPA um, and about, um, you know, and I know you, you want to talk specifically about BPA, but, but specifically about sort of this general chemphobia out there. Plenty of people have been, you know, reviewing chemicals and chemical risks. And I know it's hard because how do you know who to believe and who to listen to? But it has been my experience that government agencies err on the side of being conservative. You know, people have criticized FDA saying they're not looking at all the studies, but every time someone puts a study in front of FDA and says, you haven't looked at the study, FDA says, no, we did look at it. And this is why the study didn't alter our conclusion. So it's, it's, FDA is not ignoring anything. FDA is right. just appropriately looking at whether these studies are relevant to humans or not. That's what's happening. Well, what, so, well the advice, I think, I think we'll close on this. The advice I give people is I am not a scientist. I am not a toxicologist or an epidemiologist. I am not an, I am not an adjunct faculty member at Harvard. <laughs> and I don't know, I don't, I don't spend time like you, you do researching all the studies. And so I say, you know, don't listen to me. Listen to the scientists on this stuff. Listen to Dr. Julie Goodman, um, who, who, re- who researches this stuff, cares about this stuff. She's a mother. She obviously cares about this stuff also from a personal perspective. So that's my advice to people. And, um, and I, you know, I hope, uh, I hope people will listen um, l- listen to you a little bit more, maybe listen less to some of the hysterical um, activists out there and feel a little bit better about these issues. Well, thanks again, Dr. Goodman, for joining us. I think this was a very interesting conversation. And thanks to all of our listeners for joining us as well. Oh, thanks for having me. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by IWF.org for similar content.